Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 3, we'll be looking at this morning. And while you're doing that, I'll just make a couple introductory comments. Uh, First of all, I want to thank Pastor Dan for speaking the last two Sundays and uh, doing a great job at that. And uh, after listening to last week's message, I wondered whether I should just ask Pastor Dan to sing it. Uh, he's, he's out there again. <laughs> he was up for the challenge, you know. When you look at this passage of Scripture, uh, those of you that are old enough to know the song by the turtles, there is a season, turn, 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 can hardly read this passage of Scripture without hearing that in the back of your mind, especially now that I mentioned it. But let me read this chapter for you, and uh, then we're going to take a closer look at it. Scripture says, There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under heaven. There is a time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to uproot. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to tear down, and a time to build. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere Him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Let's pray. Father, as we talk about this passage of Scripture this morning, would you give us insight? to discern what is truth for us today and how we should live in this world and to understand how much of this is spoken from the natural man's point of view. That apart from you, life looks meaningless. It looks futile. It looks like it has no purpose at all. 
But I thank you, Father, that we are New Testament believers that understand what Christ has done and that have our hope grounded in Him and that this world will not always continue as it is, but one day you will make all things new. Thank you for that. Amen. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is the fourth little scroll that we're going to look at in this series of the five little scrolls that are up here. And this particular book was read during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you remember in Judaism, there were three main festivals where every Jewish male was required to attend. One was Passover in the spring, and the other was Pentecost at the end of the first kind of harvest that took place, and then there was the Feast of Tabernacles that took place in what would be our months of September-October at the end of the year. It came at the end of the grain harvest and the grape harvest. It was a time of celebration, a time of joy as it recognized that harvest, and they celebrated it for seven days. Can you imagine that? It was probably like a vacation for them. The harvest was over. They came to Jerusalem. They were to celebrate uh, this particular uh, harvest that had come in, and there were happy times. I mean, those of you that grew up in an agricultural community, you know what that's like when the harvest is in, and it's been a good year and a good crop, and you come together to celebrate. Well, also during this time, families were to live in temporary shelters that were called booths. Nobody lived in their house. They were to move kind of outside. It was like camping, you know, and you set up these booths and you were there. And if you had your family and your children, it was kind of fun. It was a a memorable time as they came together and celebrated. It reminded them of a very different time in their history when their ancestors wandered in the wilderness in these kind of temporary shelters. It reminded them of how God had brought them to this land of plenty, this good land that they were to settle in and be a part of. Now, why then did this book come to be read at such a joyous time? Why is this book of Ecclesiastes, which is kind of difficult to understand, honestly, there are parts in it that you really have to chew on. It's kind of like celery, you know, you've got to work on it a while before you can digest it. Why did this book come to be read at this joyous time? I think that there's a couple reasons. One is that Ecclesiastes reminds us that life is transient. Life is short. There are seasons to life, but they quickly pass as we move along in these years. And it also reminds us that because of that, this world is not our home. We are strangers and aliens here. In a sense, that's also what the booths reminded them. They were just temporary residents moving through this land. This world's not my home. There is a world to come that will be permanent and perfect. But the book of Ecclesiastes also reminds us that every good gift we receive is a gift from God. All of these blessings that God showers upon us from the air that we breathe, being real basic, to the beauty of the world He's made, to the blessings of family and friends, or the way He provides for us through our work, or the finances we have, or the gifts received, all of those, all of those are gifts from a good God who loves us and cares for us. And we are to remember that. And those good gifts are meant to remind us of the God who is that giver. 
They're not for us to become proud or boastful and to say, hey, look what I've done or what I've accumulated or accomplished. No, they're to remind us of God's grace. And I think this book was intended to anchor our joy in a reality about this life. A reality that understands that this world and this life is short and everything's going to one day pass away. And yet at the same time, to live as Christians who are able to live and enjoy life to the fullest because we recognize these things that we have are gifts from God. That's a pretty good message for us to remember. When I look at uh, chapter 3, there are some things that stand out to me here. Number one, it tells us that God is sovereign over all of life. And the writer of Scripture here shows us that in verses 1 to 8 by using these pairs, these couplets, these pairs of opposites that encompass everything in between. There's 28 things he mentions, 14 pairs, multiples of seven, all a symbol of completeness. Kind of interesting as you break it down that way. And they all speak about these seasons that there are in life. For example, there is a time to be born and a time to die. Those are the bookends of life. They encompass everything in between, and we know that there's a lot there. You can break life down into stages. You know, you have preschoolers, and you have your children, and you have your adolescent period, and you have uh, young adults, and then you have those that are married, and married with children, and empty nesters, and those that are now retired, and seniors. And life moves along in stages. We gear a lot of our teaching, our curriculum, to helping people move through those stages of life and the opportunities that come with each one. But you talk to those that are seniors in our church and they'll tell you how very quickly that passes. And you can see it going by. You can see time marching by. He tells us that there is a time to plant and a time to uproot. You can think about that in terms of agriculture. Literally, there is a season for planting, there's a season for harvesting, and there's a season for working up the, to- uh, the soil. And you can't change that. You know, you can't decide to plant in January and harvest in March. It's just not going to work. You can't control those things. You work when the season is right. And you plant and you uproot. But also, metaphorically, There's also a time in our life when we put down roots and there's a time when we pull up roots and we move. There's a time when you may be starting a family and you're raising your children and you settle down and you live in an area and you uh, watch your children grow and be involved in school and activities and you are raising them up and helping them to know Christ and sending them out into the world. And then there comes a time in life when it's time to sell your home and move. I think of like Gail's folks, for example, that lived with us this past year. That lived most of their adult life in the same house, in the same place, in Cottage Grove. And then comes a time as you're getting older where you can't take care of everything in the home anymore. And the yard's too much. And all of those things. And there comes a season when you leave your home. And you move into that facility that's maybe for assisted living or for those that are elderly because that's the stage that you are in in life. And it can be hard. There's a feeling of loss there. There are those things that change in our life, but that's part of the reality of life. He tells us that there's a time to kill and a time to heal. 
He's not talking about in the personal sense it is never right for us to murder. Uh, you know, it's not right on that individual basis, but when we look at our world, and we look at also what he says later in verse 8 about there's a time for war and a time for peace, we see that in our world, don't we? It seems like there are wars continually. And there's a time when there are just wars to get involved in, and we wrestle with that. When is it just or not? We wrestle with things like capital punishment or the death penalty. When is it right to take a life? And when is it right to heal? And he's saying that there is time for both. There is a time when that is a part of our world. He tells us there's a time to tear down and a time to build. Nothing in this life is permanent. Anything that we build or try to build up will one day wear down. You know, I looked at that in terms of the farm in which I grew up, and I think of those years when uh, buildings were well-maintained and painted and cared for and the yard looked good and all of those things looked like it was flourishing. It was a time of health. And then as my dad died and the farm was rented out and my mom was getting older and couldn't take care of it, things wore down. Things weren't handled in the same way as much, and it came to that point where it was time to sell that and to move on. If you watch the uh, All-Star game this week, you even saw that they're going to be tearing down Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built. All things wear out in this life, and there comes a time when they need to be replaced. He tells us there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. There are seasons of grief and there are seasons of joy. And the older you get, the more you see that and you go through those times. There's a time to scatter and a time to gather. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give up searching, a time to keep, a time to throw away. And all of these things remind us that life is fleeting, it is transitory, and we can't control it. All we can do is live our life to the fullest each and every day. But for the unbeliever, this is really difficult. I mean, if it's hard for us as believers to see those seasons changing that way, think about it as an unbeliever who has no hope. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes so often gives us is this viewpoint from under the sun. And so you see like in verse 9, the question is asked, what does the worker gain from his toil? I mean, what's the point? Is it just simply about I get up and I go to work to earn some money so I can do this? Or am I trying to earn my money so I can enjoy my retirement? But then somebody may get to retirement and die and never enjoy that? I mean, what is this? There are all these kind of questions. And he says, I've seen the burden that God has laid on men who feel this. Like, like this isn't right. I mean, for the unbeliever, it looks like life is short. It's beyond our control. It's hard. It's a burden. It's a mystery. I don't get it. It's unfair. It doesn't make sense. And then on top of all that, in verses 18-21, through 21, he says that men are like the animals. That's kind of interesting to think about too, isn't it? It's interesting to me that the Bible said this well before Darwin and his thoughts about the origin of man or about evolution. 
here's this viewpoint of the natural man saying, I don't get it. We're just like the animals, it seems to me. I mean, just like they die, we die, go into the ground. And who knows whether the spirit of a man goes up and the spirit of an animal goes down in the earth. I don't understand it. It's the natural man's point of view. And thankfully, for the believer, life is different. Because of what Christ has done, and because of our hope in Him, it changes the way in which we live. The writer of Scripture tells us here that God makes everything beautiful in its time in verse 11. There is a Creator, and we are His creatures. And this Creator has made everything beautiful in its time. And it's not that everything that happens in this world is good and beautiful. It's not. We live in a fallen world, a world that's marred by sin. We experience toil and frustrations and difficulties in this life. It happens for all of us. But thankfully, God is good and He is in control. And He reminds us of that in a verse such as Romans 8.28. When Paul writes, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. What a great verse that is. What a great promise that God is at work for our good over and over again. And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? I was recently on our vacation. We had a great couple weeks away. We went for... uh, uh, trip out west as a family. Gail and I first were enjoying some time in Yellowstone and the Tetons, and then we picked up Ben and went back to Steamboat Springs where our other sons drove out and joined us there for a week in the mountains. And it's just beautiful. I mean, I love that. It just really refreshes my spirit, and I enjoy seeing the beauty of God's creation. And really, everything went pretty well except for uh, one thing that happened that was kind of an odd coincidence. Both on Jason's car and on my car, we blew water pumps. I don't, you know, I don't know if it was being at that altitude or what. I talked to one of the mechanics out there who was doing the repairs on them, and he just called it the Yampa Valley curse. He said, you know, it just happens when you're out here and you're not supposed to leave. But it was kind of an interesting thing because Jason's had happened at the beginning of the week as he was coming in, and fortunately he was able to make it there. And for mine, it was the day before we were going to leave when it just blew and I had to have it replaced. But it was the circumstances in which that occurred that were really kind of frustrating for me. Our guys had planned to go on a backpacking trip, hiking on the Continental Divide. So the plan was that we were going to drop off their car at one end and then we were going to drive them about 60 miles north into Wyoming and they were going to hike along the Continental Divide for six days. So we're taking the vehicle, Jason's car, in to park it at a trailhead. And on the way in, I noticed that the particular road that we were going on, first of all, there was a road closed ahead sign. And then the second thing it said was that it was for four-wheel drive vehicles only. And I'm driving a Buick. (laughs) And Jason's in his Malibu. And so neither of us are quite ready for this road. And uh, Matt's like, no, no, the book says it's just fine. We can make it. And so we uh, start out on this road, you know, and it's like this and up and down, and there's sharp, pointy rocks in the road, and it's just, I mean, it's deep ravines, and we're going about as slow as we can possibly go and trying not to take out the oil pan or anything else important under the car. 
And wouldn't you know, we got about two miles in over this rough road, and I'm kind of starting to steam as we're going along, and you're like, we shouldn't be on this road. This is not a good idea. And uh, two miles in, we run into a, a vehicle, a four-wheel drive pickup that is stuck in a snowdrift that is blocking the road. And so we had to stop, and we had to find a way to back up, turn around, and we helped them to get unstuck. They had shovels they were digging out. And I'm thinking, we really shouldn't be out on this road. <laughs> and just then, I hear this hissing sound under my hood, and, and I'm smelling antifreeze. And I'm going, you know, th- this is not good. We are about two miles in in this backcountry road, and what are we going to do? Well, fortunately, we were able to turn around and, and um, find a way to get back, you know, and it's not leaking too bad, and we actually made our way out and back to Steamboat Springs. But all of a sudden, now our plans are just kind of up in the air because, you know, i got to get the car fixed so we can get home, and I don't know if I can find a mechanic coming into the weekend, and I don't know how this is all going to work, and I am just, I'm frustrated. And I remember going back into the bedroom there, and I just kind of slammed my hand down, and I go, you know, we just shouldn't have done this. And and now we're going to have to try and work this out, and it's in the evening, and I can't call a mechanic yet, and I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm just mad. And the Lord tapped me on the shoulder, and he goes, do you remember Romans 8.28? <laughs> One of those moments where he brings the scripture to mind, and he says, Do you trust me on that? That God's able to work all things out for good according to his purposes. And you know, it was like, again, the light went on and I just had to say, Lord, forgive me for my attitude. And thank you that you are sovereign over this. And I trust you. And I went out and I asked my family for forgiveness there for my bad attitude at that moment. And we talked about it and I said, you know what, I don't know whether this delay is simply because uh, it shortened their trip by a day. I don't know if God didn't want them hiking on that part of the trail. I don't know if he did it so we could get it fixed here rather than having it blow on the road. I I don't know. That's often sometimes the hard part in looking at our circumstances in life is that from our vantage point, we can't see why there are those delays many times. We just have to trust that God is good. I heard about the students who, when they went out to national conference, though, that they were delayed in road construction, and because of that, they missed a really serious storm in Omaha, a storm that was quite devastating down there, and a couple people were killed. Sometimes road delays even can be good. Do you thank God for that? And do you trust Him that He is still sovereign and that He is in control? I think the Scripture is reminding us of that. That there are those times in life where we just simply can't see what's on the other side or what may happen in the future. And we have to trust Him. We see that in the third point that the writer of Ecclesiastes makes when he says that God has made us for eternity. We see that in verse 11. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Man has a capacity and a longing for immortality. It is part of our God-likeness. There is within us this sense that there has to be more to life than what we see. 
You can find it in every culture, in every religion. There is this belief in some kind of life after death. There has to be. Now, why is that? Well, if you could take a pretty kind of obvious example, you know, if I can do a comparison here. If you were to ask the question, why does a car go faster when you step on the accelerator and why does it slow down when you step on the brake? You know, a mechanic could tell you how all of that works in terms of the car's operation, but the bottom line is it does that because it was made that way. It's made to go faster when you step on the accelerator. It's made to slow down when you step on the brakes, and it's pretty obvious. Or if you were to ask the question, why does a refrigerator keep things cold and an oven heat things up? I mean, there'd be an answer as to why those things work the way that they do, but the bottom line, again, is they were made to do that. So why does man have this belief that there is a life after death, a life beyond the grave? Why is there this sense within man that there must be more than what we see to this world? The answer the Bible gives is because we were made that way. We are made in the image of God, and He has set eternity in our hearts. Yet we can't quite figure it all out. Apart from God's revelation of what eternity is going to be like, none of us would know what that would be like fully. God has imposed a frustration because we can't see the other side. And there have only been a few brief times in Scripture when God has opened up the eyes of like Elijah's servant who saw the chariots of fire and the angels that were there. There have only been those brief moments when He has allowed people to see something of the other side. But men long for that. We are curious about that. People want some sort of empirical evidence, if you will. That's why people want to hear stories about near-death experiences. Or they want to know, what was it like? What did you see? But you know what? The best evidence we have is given right here in the Scripture. In the person of Jesus Christ, who came into this world from heaven, and who told us what it is like. And in the person of Jesus Christ who died and rose again and came back to life and tells us about His loving Heavenly Father and gives us a picture in the book of Revelation of what that day will be like when we are gathered around the throne and God makes all things new. It's the witness of Scripture. And as believers, we live by faith and not by sight. We haven't seen it, but we believe it. And we have seen it in the Scriptures. And finally, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us over and over again that only God can give us the ability to enjoy life. That that ability to enjoy life is a gift from God. And really, out of all the people who live upon this planet, it ought to be the believers who live and enjoy life to the fullest. And there is something wrong with our witness when the world, if they see Christians as being always negative, always dour, always sour, as though the way that they live life is by a series of don'ts. You can't do this, do this, do this. And if they see Christians living in that kind of negative, legalistic framework, it's not a very good witness, is it? Instead, it's Christians who to the fullest ought to be able to enjoy the beauty of a mountain 
or the glory of a summer day or the gifts that God has given us of good food to eat and activities that we can participate in and enjoy. But the message of Ecclesiastes is that we are to be a people who ought to be holy and happy and live life to the very fullest. We see that here in verse 12 when he says, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. God wants us to be happy. The Scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 that we should be joyful always. That laughter and joy are gifts from God and that there ought to be a, a richness to that. When you get together with friends and you tell stories and you share and you laugh about life, doesn't that feel good? And that's the way that it should be. He wants us to be a people who do good. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. The happiest people are not those who live for self. The happiest people are those who serve and who give and who use their gifts and their time and their talents to be a blessing in the life of others as well. God wants us to be grateful. Grateful for the basic provisions of life, like food and drink, for our health, for our homes, for our families. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. He wants us to find satisfaction in our work, to be satisfied, to be content, and to be able to do our work in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. He uses the word toil here. He says I, in verse 13, you know, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all this toil. This is the gift of God. It is an honest recognition that even in the best of jobs, there are things that we don't enjoy. There are things that are tough or part of that work, perhaps. And yet He wants us to find enjoyment and satisfaction in it. And finally, in verse 14, He wants us to worship Him. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. And God does this so that men will revere Him. Only God's works are permanent. And only what God does is fully complete. And He does that so that we might remember that we are the creature and He is the Creator. And we would bow and worship Him. When I read through this passage this week, the person that came to mind for me as an example was William Wilberforce. When it was said of William Wilberforce that he was one of the happiest of men and also a holy man. And I thought about that. Here was a man who fought for the abolition of slavery, carried heavy burdens, had physical illnesses and things going on in his life that were trials. And yet he was happy. He was a family man. He was a man who walked with God. He's a man who enjoyed going for long walks outdoors, would quote Scripture, would talk with God, would pray, and enjoyed life in that way. And I thought, what a great aspiration for all of us. Wouldn't it be great if someday somebody could write on your tombstone, holy and happy, holy and happy. That's how I want to live. I mean, I want to live life with joy and giving thanks to God for all that He's done. But I also want to be a man who walks with God. 
and lives according to his word in holiness and truth. God is our creator. We are his creatures. And he wants us to remember who we are and to honor and praise him. So how will you apply this message this morning? What is it that God is saying to you? And what would you aspire to in your life when you think about these words from the book of Ecclesiastes and the season of life that you are in? Let's pray. Father, would you show each of us what it is that you want us to take from this word of Scripture today that we might live lives that are holy and happy? pleasing to you, honoring, enjoying the season of life that we are in and making the most of it for your honor and glory. Father, that's my prayer for us as individuals and as a church. And only you can show us what we should do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.